0: All right, here we are. We did have something of a catastrophe last week because I was brash enough to steal Moxie's chair, but don't worry. Don't worry. This, this week, I know, I know that even though that's my chair, it's her chair, <laughs> so we should be okay. So welcome to the uh, Friday live stream. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. That's me. I'm Mike, and I'm here to answer your questions from the live chat. Those questions are getting loaded. We do this every week for those who don't know every week at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That is almost every week. The last two weeks in November, I won't be able to do this because I'll be at the ETS conference, and then I'm going to be, it's Thanksgiving, and I'm going to be with family out of the state. And so I won't be able to do it for the uh, next—the last two Fridays in the month. But otherwise, we're always here doing this. And question number one is, and I know it comes from Anonymous, who says, can you please explain what the Bible says about local churches having a process of church discipline? And how that should be carried out. Should it be rare or a regular part of church life? Where should leaders draw the line when deciding if someone made a minor mistake versus someone needing discipline? So this is challenging. Okay, so there's easy parts to this question, which is church discipline is a real thing, a biblical thing. Churches should definitely do it. The difficult part turns, uh, it becomes like, when do you do it? And how do you do it? Because this is where the challenges arise. So we're going to look at some scripture here. Two passages before we go to your guys' questions from the live chat, and Matthew 18 is the first one. There's actually a lot of passages we could look at, but we're going to look at just a few on this concept because this is the Q&A where I don't get into tons of detail, but I want to give you a good answer. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Jesus doesn't want the sin between brothers to cause division. He wants restoration. And the goal of even church discipline is ultimately restoration and the purity and godliness of the church. Then he says, but, and then here's where a procedure starts to take place. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is that we can, we can confirm. So in church discipline, you want to confirm that this person really has done a truly grievous thing. And you need to know that they're unrepentant before discipline ever takes place. There are personal, interpersonal attempts to bring restoration. Verse 17: If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector. Which, which does not mean you despise him and hate him and you won't look at him. That's that's not how the church t- treats gentiles and tax collectors. The idea here is, and Jesus is speaking in a Jewish context, is that you, you treat them as though they are not on the inside of the church fellowship anymore. Then um, he gives them this sort of affirmation, <clears throat> whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven, just basically saying that this church discipline is a legitimate thing. Another scripture that comes into this is 1 Corinthians 5. And I'll read to you. This is, this is not just an instruction on how it takes place, but this is an example of it actually happening in the New Testament times. Paul He writes, it is actually reported to the the Corinthians, it is reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. There was a guy in the Corinthian church in one of their local church fellowships there who was sleeping with his father's wife, probably his mother-in-law. And this is a shock and it's disgusting and horrible, right? And he's like, nobody's doing anything about it. The guy just keeps going to church. He keeps naming the name of Christ and he's in this ongoing gross uh, unrepentant sin, and he says, "And you're not, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this to uh, let him who has done this be removed from among you." That's what church discipline is. It's just you're not part of our fellowship. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. This is a, a phrase that it's meant to sound harsh, but it's not, me- not meant to be misunderstood. Paul's saying, deliver him to Satan. Satan's the God of this age. You are saying to him, you are outside of our fellowship. You are you are part of the world. That's what you're saying to the gentleman. You're not um, uh, trying to attack him physically. The destruction of the flesh here is through the discipline of saying you're not part of the fellowship. You will experience the the um, the pain of your sin. The, the, the carnality and the pain that it brings upon you that you might return, right? So that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. We want to see him repent and come back. Even the act of saying you're disfellowshipped in a Christian way is meant to bring you back into fellowship. That's the goal. That's the heart behind it. Your boasting is not good, he says. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, uh, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, This whole section, verses 6 through 8, tells us another side of the the sort of uh, church discipline, some would say excommunication. You're not kicking them out of Jesus. You're not saying they're not saved. You are saying they're not part of your your fellowship that's committed to following Jesus, because they're not committed to following Jesus. Um, But the other side of this isn't about the person being removed, it's about the effect that a person who's living an ongoing unrepentant lifestyle, a worldly life, the, the effect they have on the rest of the body of Christ. If a church doesn't do church discipline, this is what I'm getting from scripture here, then that church will see carnality spread through the members of the fellowship. And this is this is a fact of reality. One of the reasons why you do this sort of surgical removal of a person from the body is because they are infecting the body with their own sins. And in the church, this is not popular nowadays. In the church, there is a commitment to following Jesus, not just claiming Jesus. So that's what he's talking about. <clears throat> Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexual sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now, now I'm writing to you. So, You as a Christian, you're meant to associate or connect and have fellowship and relate. I mean, fellowship is a sketchy term to use here, but have relationships with the world in that you might outreach with them. You can't, and you're not meant to like just socially cut off all contact with non-Christians. That's a, that's an unhealthy thing as a Christian. You're a light to the world. You want to evangelize. But what about the believer who's living a really sinful lifestyle? He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. At least they claim to be Christian if he's guilty of, and now a list comes. Now, <clears throat> in preparation for answering this question, because I, I know the first question during our Q&As, in preparation for answering it, I looked up a bunch of resources on how different pastors and leaders talk about when church discipline should take place. And in all of the resources, I never, I'm not saying nobody does it, but not in the ones I noticed, I never saw anybody reference what we have here in First Corinthians five eleven. This is a list of people that are liable to be excommunicated or disfellowshipped or church disciplined. This is this is the, the list, right? People who call themselves Christians, they bear the name of a brother, and they're guilty of sexual immorality. That's one thing. Greed. That's another. Idolatry. That's another. They're a reviler. They're a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one uh, which I don't I think means within church gatherings I don't think it's referring to home fellowship meals. let me, let me just say this now so I don't forget it because this is a quick rundown of church discipline issues. church discipline should not break family relationships. this I think is a very important principle and a lot of people misunderstand it and some exa- an example of this is let's say you're a, you're a wife and your husband has been disfellowshipped from the body of Christ uh, at, from the local body of Christ the church. <clears throat> Maybe he's really a Christian. Maybe he's really saved. We don't know. His lifestyle is such that it's hard to tell. Um, are you to then be less affectionate, less loving, give less attention or or companionship or friendship to your husband now? And the answer is absolutely not. In 1 Peter 3, the example of a married Christian woman to an, uh, to a husband who's not even a believer, who rejects the gospel, is that she should be loving and gracious and kind to him. I think the point here is, church relationships are not family relationships and you should still be loving and gracious to your family, even if they're experiencing church discipline. This is something that I think happens with say the Jehovah's witness twisting of church discipline is it's meant the person is being shunned. That's the term they've used, not disconnected from identifying themselves as a Christian in the body of Christ. That's the church discipline. You're not a Christian in this local fellowship. It's not that we shun and hate you, despise you, or something like that. And family should continue to have relationships with you as much as possible, as they that shouldn't affect it. That's my, my understanding of that. Um, but what of these things? What of these? This list, let's talk about this. We have sexually immoral. That would be somebody who's in continual and unrepentant sexually immoral sin, not just someone who stumbles sometimes, someone who fails and then says, I repent. Um, rather, this is open, like the example of a man who's. An ongoing, unrepentant relationship, sleeping with his father's wife. Yeah, there's an example. Um, covetous or greedy. This is a person who is excessively and immoderately desirous of acquiring more and more wealth. Jesus himself said, you might be like, covetous, greed? Well, that's qualification for being disfellowshipped? But lots of greedy people are in church. Okay, people struggle with greed, but this is different. This is where Jesus says you can't serve God and, ma- and mammon or money. You can't serve God and money. And if their life is that of serving money as though it replaces the desire to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, then yes, they're liable to potentially be disfellowshipped. Um, So we're not just talking about someone who stumbles occasionally, someone who fails and repents, someone who says, I have a struggle, you know, guys, please be patient with me. No, no, we're talking about uh, someone who's living this lifestyle, naming themselves a brother. The idolater, this is obviously a doctrinal rebellion against Christ. Um, The reviler, this is someone who causes uh, division. This, this one on the list, they cause division. Titus 3.10 confirms this when it says that we should reject a divisive person after the second and third admonition. This is someone who's, they're, they're infecting and harming the body of Christ locally. And so we always want to consider, <clears throat> as a youth pastor, I would, um, previously when I was a youth pastor, I would, um, I would allow students who had all kinds of issues to stay in the local fellowship of, this, of, the, of the youth ministry. But if they were hurting other students, that's when they could be asked to leave, right? Because this is when you're harming others. Me putting you here is enabling you to cause all kinds of pain to other people. So that must be considered. Uh, drunkard isn't just someone who has ever gotten drunk, but it's someone who's in that lifestyle. And uh, extortioner, someone who's taking care of, uh, advantage of others financially. I've actually been part of a situation where somebody was taken out of a church, disfellowship, because he was running real estate scams in the, in the local body of Christ. And he did it as as a as a, a small group leader, so he had this respect. Like he's part of the he's part of the leadership, right? He's a small group leader, and uh, he ended up being disfellowshipped because it was doing real estate scams and scamming people out of a lot of money. And that was the the right action to take. And it took months. They 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 asked him to repent. They tried to get him to change. Eventually, they had to protect the 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 congregation from him. So if the sin is persistent, if they're unrepentant. Um, if the, the sin is, is open and public, it's not like some secret thing you, you, you have to like read their diary to find out about. It. This you can do and you should do. And I think churches probably don't do it enough uh, in, in, my, in my local area. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not here criticizing any particular church. I, I really do mean the churches I've just generally been exposed to. Probably this is not happening enough. Now, this might partly be, be because within, say, the Calvary Chapel movement, we don't have church membership. It's a lot harder to do just you know church discipline when you don't have church membership because you don't have that sort of thing that you can take away because it's also unofficial and i mean i don't think the bible tells us we have to have official rosters of church membership but i think that there might be a potential benefit in that helps you deal with church discipline all right that's the first question let's go to question number two thanks guys for joining um Katie's online name asks, Why does the Bible sound like baptism is required for salvation in some places? And she references Mark 16, 16. Um, Does Acts 1, 5 answer what kind of baptism is required? Holy Spirit baptism. What did Jesus mean by to fulfill all righteousness? Okay, several questions there. Let's just look at Mark 16. And I will answer your question in as straightforward a manner as I possibly can. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, Strictly logically speaking, okay, Katie's online name, you might feel like I'm logic chopping here a little bit, but I want you to really hear me out. (laughs) Um, I do think that baptism here is referring to water baptism, but maybe not exclusively because generally speaking, when a person got baptized, it was right when they believed and at the same time, as they believed, they got baptized, they also were filled with the Spirit. And so baptism, water, and Spirit is a little blurry in some passages. But I do think this includes baptism of a water nature because Jesus tells them that this is part of the commission. Go to preach the gospel, right? And then they're to baptize. This is definitely inclusive of water baptism, even if it implies other, other things like the Holy Spirit filling a person. Um, but logically speaking... if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. I don't think baptism saves, but I agree with that statement. If you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. But what if you, what's the alternative? You don't believe. Okay, but if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. Notice the scenario of believing and not being baptized does not come up in the passage. And this is where I want to logic chop, hopefully properly and carefully. If you believe and are not baptized, That is not being addressed in in Mark 16, 16. The scenario is a believer who's baptized and a non-believer. This guy's saved, that guy's not. The only thing that's on both sides of the equation is belief. So that's the only thing you can say is guaranteed necessary for salvation is belief because that's what's on both sides of the equation. Um, Acts 1, 5, you said, does that answer what kind of baptism it is? I kind of implied my answer here. Um, This is where... it said, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, and that's true that when when Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and that is a baptism. But I also think that that's meant to be an initiation into the new covenant. Um, I don't think when Jesus says, <clears throat> go out and baptize people, that that didn't include water baptism. Right, The two are blurred a bit, because when, when they were baptized is when they first believed, and also when the Holy Spirit filled them. So they're together, but I don't think we can say when in Mark, when Jesus says, go and baptize, I don't think we can say he doesn't mean water there. I think that we need to, we need to say that. Um, Now, finally, you say, why is it though, that a lot of times there's verses where it sounds like baptism is required for salvation? Um, I want to say it doesn't to me, (laughs) Um, but I want to say that baptism is associated with salvation. And the reason for this is, is a couple. One. Baptism is the first thing you did when you put your faith in Jesus. Like you just got baptized right away. It wasn't six months of training in, in classes, in new believers classes. Like you just got baptized right away. So baptism is something that every believer in the local church says, the day I believed, I immediately went and got baptized that day, the next day, like it happened right away. So they associate baptism with salvation because it's something that happens every time a person gets saved in our current environment, many people get saved and they don't get baptized for months or years. And so it occurs to us to differentiate between the two. That coincidental nature of baptism happening at the time of salvation makes it easy to talk about it in terms of salvation. Um, Also, Baptism symbolizes salvation. When you go in the water, you come out, the washing of sin, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, you're associating yourself with all this in baptism. As you go under the water, it's like Jesus dying. As you come up, it's like Christ rising from the dead. Uh, The water, it's like washing of sin. These are all symbolism. They're representative. But because they represent salvation, it's understandable that baptism is used in discussing salvation. What we don't have is scripture that tells us you have to be water baptized or you won't be saved. That would be the verse that I would need. I would need a verse that says that. Or I would need, say, in Acts chapter 10, I would need for it not to say what it says about Cornelius. Because here's Cornelius and his group, a bunch of Gentiles. They hear the gospel from Peter. He's preaching the gospel. And they get saved. They believe in Jesus. So they hear and they have faith. That's salvation. And they have not been baptized. They're filled with the Spirit and they speak in tongues, proving that they are definitely saved. They're part of this new covenant salvation. And then Peter says, how can we not water baptize them now? Seeing as how they received the promise of the the Holy Spirit, just like we have. So here's an example in the Bible of someone saved who was not yet baptized. But what did they do next? They baptized them, right? Because every believer should be baptized. Hope that answers your question. Number three, Shane Hoving says, my church says a declaration before tithing. Part of it is, and now we're going to quote the declaration his church says, I am believing him for advancements, God ideas, blessings and increases, financial freedom and breakthroughs. Is this a prosperity church red flag? Shane, yes. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I know when I say this, it doesn't mean I want to demonize your church. It doesn't mean I'm saying your pastor is, is, a, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm not suggesting these things. I don't know nearly enough about your church to make judgments in, in any regard. Is, however, this a red flag for the prosperity church and prosperity gospel and prosperity teaching stuff? Yes, it absolutely is. When I give my tithe to the church, or, and I don't think you have to give 10%. I think that rule is not necessary. I think Christians are supposed to give. We should support local ministries. We should support those who minister to us. And we should support the poor, which many churches forget this, the poor in in our local church community, as well as persecuted believers abroad and missions and outreach and all that. But 10% is not a required number. Um, now, when you give, though, and you say, say say, I tithe 20 bucks and I say, uh, I give $100, whatever it is, and I say, I am believing him. I'm believing God for advancements, God ideas, blessings, and increases, financial freedom and breakthroughs. This is a deal I'm making. What I'm, what I hear from this is by me giving money, I am trusting that God's going to bless me with certain things like I'm literally giving money to get from God. Giving in a biblical sense is different. I give because I trust God more than my money. That's beautiful and wonderful, but I give because then God has to bless me with prosperity. That is selfish and that is not his kingdom. I'm literally just, it's like imagine a lottery ticket where you knew you would win. That's, that's, that's tithing in the prosperity environment. Oh, I just, you just gotta, I remember hearing a church, we went to a church in in San Diego who will go unnamed. (laughs) Plus, I don't remember their name. Me and my wife were on vacation down in San Diego. And um, we, you know, it was Sunday, so we wanted to go to church. So we just found a local church there. And we just randomly went to a church. And this guy got up and for about 15, 20 minutes, he talked about the need to give. And he talked about how he just... In his small business, he just kept giving and giving, even though he wasn't getting breakthrough. But he kept tithing and giving and giving. And finally, he's had, like this last year, he's had his best year ever. And he's had just wind, landfall or windfall, whatever the term is, of money. And it's been going really well. So he encouraged everybody, make sure you tithe and don't give up and keep giving. This, to me, I want to like throw up, right? <laughs> this is so wrong. Giving to get makes God uh, makes money my goal instead of God my goal giving to get makes money my goal instead of god my goal giving out of trust and just lord i want to seek first your kingdom jesus said store up treasures in heaven but these tithers don't think they're doing that they think they're getting more treasures on earth this is this is a big red flag i'm believing plus you do not have a biblical promise uh, in in context <laughs> that says that you're going to get these advancements god ideas blessings and increases and all that yeah all right, we'll go to the next one. Number four, <clears throat> Pamela Schuett says, hi, Mike, watched your video on Halloween and wondering what your thoughts are on murder mystery dinner parties. For that matter, murder mysteries in general. Is it wrong to be entertained by them? Um, to Okay, I'm going to put this in the category of, of conscience. And uh, and here's why. When it comes to, when I say conscience, what I mean is I'm going to let each Christian decide and I'm not going to try to change their mind about it. That's what I mean. Um <clears throat> conscience comes in in a particular spot when, it, when, a, when an issue is really in, in all reality it's not a sin issue in and of itself anything could become sin but it's not a sin issue in and of itself then I leave it to the person's conscience because some people feel this way some feel that way and they should honor the Lord as, as according to that conscience um, your conscience cannot make sinful things okay but it can make things that are okay into bad things for you so you don't want to violate that conscience Drinking is like this. Drinking in moderation is totally acceptable, biblically speaking. But maybe you don't want to drink. Maybe drinking is a problem for you. So you shouldn't do it. That's violating your conscience. But don't put it on someone else. I would think the same thing for murder mystery stuff. Um, now, there's some stuff that can be overly gory. It can be like really crude or whatever, really glorifying something bad. That could be a problem. But in principle, I think there's a category for this is fantasy. And it's lighthearted, and I'm not going to demonize somebody for doing that. Um, so yeah, it, it depends. Now each individual party, each the way they're doing it, the actors and the way they do it, that that all kind of depends. But I don't want to throw that conviction on everyone else. Like it's my job as a Christian. Okay, there's there's two sides. There's always on a, on these issues. There's always the the more conservative side and the more liberal side. And here these are not mean, meant as negative terms. On this one, I'm on the more liberal side, meaning liberty. I think that a Christian has the liberty to go to a murder mystery dinner party if they want. Um, but then on the more conservative side, they'll, someone will be like, no, you don't. And they make it their mission to tell everybody they don't have that liberty. That's a problem. But the liberty people don't realize how oppressive they can be too. Because <laughs> then they make it their mission to go around and tell everyone how horrible these conservative people are on on this particular issue. Oh, they're, here they come, those the, the conservatives and the, the, the Pharisees, the legalists. Um, what we don't realize is Paul's recommendation in Romans is on both sides. He says, hey, for those of you who have the liberty or who don't have the liberty, keep it to yourself that way. Don't judge right? Don't oppress those who do. And those who do have the liberty, don't look down upon. This is always ignored amongst those who have liberty. I think there's a big issue here. Those who have liberty, don't look down upon those whose conscience will not let them do these things. Read Romans 14. Check it out for yourself. Hard pills to swallow in that passage, but it creates love and fellowship amongst uh, Christians who have different convictions on things. So yeah, there's my thoughts on that. In general, not wrong could be wrong depending upon the type of content there is and I will not push that on anybody I will let people's conscience direct them in it number five Alex Pearl has a question and says hi Pastor Mike I would love to know why you love Jesus thank you so much for all your insight from a follower in England well Alex I mean this is it's funny it's such a simple question but it's one which I would love to have like this really beautiful poetic answer but I'll just be simple with you I I love him because he first loved me um, I love Jesus because he first loved me. I, I don't deserve his love. He loved me. He's had a plan for my life from the beginning of creation that I might come to know him. And even though I had sinned, even though I have failed and many, many times done ir- inexcusable, sinful things. He He loves me, redeems me, takes my sin upon himself on the cross. He died and rose for me. I, I love him, but like First John says, because he first loved me and the beautiful thing about this is that because my love is reactive to Christ, like I react to his initiating of love, it it totally removes excuse for me not loving others. Because whoever it is I don't want to love, I think of how God initiated love with me. And how even if they're not loving towards me, not kind towards me, not compassionate, I'm like, but I wasn't those things to God. So how could I not extend some... some poor imitation of the love of christ to this person compared to the true love that christ has given me Um, so yeah i love him for that Um, number six and just so you guys know all the questions uh i think are full is that that right yeah all the no more questions no more questions all the questions are full i've got 20 queued up ready to go this is number six jake Waterland, hey pastor mike my friend is doubting his faith and reality because he claims there's no way to discern truth objectively without some sort of bias. How would you answer him? Thank you. <clears throat> um, okay, this is a real challenge. I, I once had lunch with a student, former student, he's in college now, uh, or at the time, um, who felt that he didn't know if anything was real. And I just couldn't help but think of the irony of the moment. He didn't know if anything was real. This was keeping him from committing fully to Christ but it was also plaguing him and that he's like not even sure he's real or the table in front of us or the food is real and i and i i I told him but you know you're still eating your lunch right (laughs) and and either this sounds trivial to you or it's a nice wake-up call um c.s lewis let me give you another example c.s lewis wrote um something called The Pilgrim's Regress. So you guys have heard of The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Regress is about C.S. Lewis's philosophical journey to uh atheism and materialism and finally back to Jesus. And when he describes in this in this journey, it, it's it's tough reading if you don't know any philosophy um but, but he describes this journey, he's locked in a prison and the prison is is I think the prison guard is something like materialism representing materialism and it's like if i remember is years ago i read it the guard like walks by and will tell the 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 main character um who represents lewis will tell him like look at you you're, you're just look at your organs you're just you're just blood and meat and you're just bones and that's all you are and and he's trapped in there and he's despairing and then one day somebody comes alongside and delivers him from this prison and the and the person who comes alongside is reason and he talks about how he kind of went, wait a minute. I'm like, it seems wise. It's in the, I'm going to use my own terms now, not his. But it seems wise to be like, yes, I've, I've analyzed and science has declared to me that we are nothing but meat and bone and da-da-da. But it's utterly folly for a person who has consciousness and the ability to analyze to think that the things they're analyzing means that you're no more than the sum of your parts. Because certainly your awareness and your thoughts and your reasoning says you're more than that. Um, all that to say, it's hard to get somebody out of a situation like that. Um, your friend's doubting his faith and reality. And the reason he's doubting all of reality and his faith is because he says there's no way to be totally unbiased and objective. But he still eats lunch, right? You, you see, this is, he is he is really philosophically unequipped to tackle the challenges he's facing and i think if we're going to do philosophy we should be the common sense philosophers who say i'm not going to start philosophy by doubting my own existence i think that when you go to philosophy 101 and your and your teacher starts by trying to get you to doubt your own existence i think that that is the dumbest thing ever (laughs) and it's not wise it has the appearance of wisdom but it's utter folly because to doubt reality, to doubt all the things that you know and perceive and see as true because you have, say, a bias, that is not wise. That's not wise at all. So yeah, you have a bias. Everybody has a bias. I mean, you could say God has a bias, but his biases would be proper and good if, if you want to call them bias. So yeah, I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. Jake, your friend is in a psycho, is psychological turmoil, and I feel like you need to give him some kind of key that gets him out. And if if I was to talk with him, I would try to chase down this whole idea of bias and say, "What are you throwing? What knowledge are you throwing away because you think bias is that important? Like, why is bias that important? It's not." Um, and then pursue from there. Um, man, he needs like reason to come by and open the door and let him out. Uh, pray for him. Yeah, I, I hope some of that helps, Jake. Um, Hina Ido I I do says, "Howdy, Pastor Mike. Howdy. Don't question." Don't questions like 2 Kings 5, oh no, this is one of those where we have like four different passages of scripture. I don't have time to look them all up. Don't questions like 2 Kings 5.27, 2 Kings 9, eight, and Exodus 12.29 contradict Ezekiel 18.20 that says that sons cannot be punished for the sins of their fathers. Love your videos. Okay, all right, let me let me do my best to do this. When, and just so you guys know, for, for my sake, when you have a... Um, a lot of scripture passages, this isn't as tough as some. Sometimes it's like five, six passages of scripture, different books, different contexts. That's a little much for a Q&A. It's nice if you could bring it down a bit. But the Exodus passage, um, um, 1820. I'm not even sure if this is the passage you meant. Oh, Ezekiel 1820. It's not the passage you meant. You said Ezekiel, not Exodus. eighteen. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Um, I think this is talking about uh, the ultimate justice of God on a person. And it's also the ideal in the law is that you, you punish people for their own sins. You do not punish them for the sins of their parents in that sense. Um, but you're saying, hey... Is that perhaps contradictory with what we read in other places? And and a real Second Kings five twenty seven. Uh, the uh, one of the challenges for it is therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence like a leper, like snow. I think the simplest answer for this is to simply not regard um, Naaman's descendants as being punished. But as being damaged or harmed because of the sin of their father, and it's clear in Scripture that you will suffer for the sins of your father. But I mean, if, if in suffering in a generic sense, but being punished for them is a different story. So, like in the flood, there were there were there were babies who died. But I wouldn't look at the flood as punishing them. I would look at them as being you know, has enduring suffering and even death as a result of the sins of others. This is significant to not view it as punishment upon them. The punishment would be on those who were culpable for the sins that they had committed. And so Naaman has a disease and this disease, what leprosy, by the way, was a term that was um, used for a wide variety of skin diseases, not just the modern term leprosy. It almost should say, therefore, a, a disease, <laughs> the disease of Naaman. Um, and so yeah, leprosy is super generic. It could be referring to lots of different diseases. Um, it probably means that it will be a it'll that he got a disease that is also hereditary. Genetically, it's gonna it's gonna cling to his descendants for that same reason. So I would look at them as suffering the collateral damage results of the sin of another, but not being punished by them. Let me give you another example. You have an employee who's a terrible employee. They're they're stealing from the company. They're abusive. They 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 don't just show up late, and you fire them. And what if the employee comes to you and they say, look, I get it. You fired me, but you're punishing my kids because now I don't have money to put food on the table. So you're punishing them for my sin. And I think you would then go, oh, now I see what Mike means. There's a difference between them suffering because of your sin and them being punished because of your sin. That's how I would try to navigate that one. Um, Zoe Abundant, number eight. Zoe Abundant, Life Abundant, says, should we hate the evil doer, those who promote or perform abortion, for example, or should we just keep their salvation in mind, or can we do both at the same time? Um, here's where I want to say it's complicated. Um, the, I think that it's possible in some sense... Okay, in some ways, it's not possible to love somebody and, and hate them at the same time. It's, in some sense, it's not possible. In another sense, it seems like it is. <laughs> and and so let me give you an example. Let's say that you're a parent and you have a daughter and you have a son and you love them very much. You love them very much. And they, they, they're teenagers now, they're getting older and they, they really don't get along. They really can't stand each other. And your daughter... God forbid, this is just a hypothetical for the sake of getting us to think. The daughter kills and murders your son. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you love her or hate her? Now you see where it gets complicated. Um, There's a sense in which you say, well, of course I still love her. That's my daughter. But you, 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 there's a sense in which you could, I don't know if the term hate is the right word for it, but you're like, I'm repulsed by, I, I won't tolerate, I can't stand what she's done and the things she's harbored in her heart and the, the lifestyle that she's chosen, these kind of things. So there's a sense in which you can say this love doesn't mean like mm-hmm. this acceptance kind of thing. Um, God hates sinners and sin, but he loves sinners at the same time. And I think it's this illustration with the daughter. The desire for your daughter would be for her to somehow be restored, but there's still this atrocious, horrific thing she's done. So... Um, I think that I can look at those who say perform abortions or rob banks or scam people on the internet and take, take, uh, especially the elderly, they, they embezzle or steal money from the elderly. And I can say like, like there's a sense in which I hate them. Like I don't you, (laughs) um, you know, I, I, I was walking around my block one time. And I found a package on the sidewalk and it had been opened and it was a prescription. It was a bottle of prescription medication. And what I realized had happened is some porch pirate had stolen this box from my neighbor's house and they, on their way out, they opened it, saw it was a prescription and just tossed it on the ground because they didn't want it. They thought it was something valuable for them. Meanwhile, here's my neighbor, an elderly person who was without this prescription so I like walked it over and I, I gave it to them like like big props. It took like 30 seconds, right? Like I gave them their, prescri- their prescription. Don't you despise the person who would do that, who would care so little for someone else? But don't I also want them to know the love of Christ? Don't I also want them to turn and to be changed? And in the end, whether they will end up being loved or hated, whether whether they will end up being embraced or rejected by God will depend on whether they come to Christ. So God loves us while we're in our sin. He doesn't tolerate it, doesn't accept it. He hates us. There's a in which you could say he despises us for the things we're doing, but he will redeem us and he won't give, he won't give up on us until that last moment. So we have that opportunity to turn to, for him to set aside all of that as through Christ, we, we, uh, we accept his transformation and change. I hope that that helps. Um, RT, uh, Tamara M says, how do you explain to someone that their dead loved one is not sending signs to them, no matter how convinced those signs, convincing those signs are. Um, okay, th- this there's there's two questions here that I see tomorrow. One of them, in my mind, is the question of, um, like, how would I just theologically discuss the issue of whether or not you know a dead person is sending me signs? And I think I would discuss this by suggesting that. Um, We don't have evidence in scripture for this. We also have it refuted many, many times. And this is where I would go with scripture, where it talks about don't contact the dead, don't reach out to the dead, stop trying to communicate to the dead. And we often think of this in the context of, you know, God's like rebuking them for their pagan practices. But when we say pagan practices, what we think is like weirdo, culty things. But what we miss is the human natural desire to connect with our loved ones who've passed. This is an intense desire. I want to. I want them to send me. I want to connect with them. I want to talk with them. I want to see them. I want to know they're okay. And so we get into these seances or we get into these practices or we start talking to them and we start thinking that they're sending us signals. This is all very dangerous and that's why God warns us in scripture. Don't do it. Don't try to connect with the dead. Don't try to contact the dead. Don't start having conversations with people that aren't there thinking that they're hearing you. And one of the dangers of this is that while they're not interacting with you, something else can in their name. I mean, a demon can come and impersonate your, your dead loved one and then use your broken heart to manipulate you into all kinds of problems. So that's, that's what I want to say theologically. Here's the issue. But the other question is this. How do you get your friend to believe that? Because they may have this massive heart commitment to just staying in contact with this person that they loved and to them, I would want to point them towards the way that we will have eternal connection, fellowship, and communication with those who've died before us, if they're in Christ, and that is through Jesus. Um, I would, I would say, they need to, they need to stop these practices. Though their heart might pull them that way, it's a way that Satan will pull them astray. Number ten, anonymous question here: I play guitar at my church. Hopefully, not while the preachers preaching but i don't always agree with the theology couched in some songs i don't sing lines i don't agree with but i am still on stage i'd love to hear your general thoughts on this okay my and i as you guys know i play guitar too i've led worship thousands of times okay it's more times than i could possibly count um and what would i do if a song is up there and i can't sing it um well i could i still play it but not sing it um Perhaps, perhaps because my commitment to the band and to the overall ministry, I don't want to quit that over this one issue. So perhaps I could say it, but not sing it, not sing that line. I would do that up to a point. If I thought it was, so let me just say a lyric can be um, great, like it's godly, it honors Christ, it it speaks truth, it, it builds up the body, or it could be, let's say several other things. It could be totally heretical, or it could perhaps be just a little weird. Like, I'm not comfortable with it. Or maybe it's not false, but it connects to a false teaching. Like, it doesn't really teach that, but it's connected to that in a way that's uncomfortable. So if it's in these other categories, I feel like I would have more leniency. But if it's actually, if it's proclaiming actual heresy, like the lyric says, like, Jesus isn't enough for me. (laughs) Okay, I'm off the band. Like, I I refuse to do this song, and I'm going to push it with the leadership of the church if I can but, um, but if it's in these other categories, I think I might just hold my tongue, not do that one part and realize that um, not everything that happens from the pulpit of your church will be totally healthy and right. So you do have to have discernment, but also discernment needs to be coupled with wisdom, right? Because this is something I learned slowly over the years. Discernment without wisdom is destructive. Discernment without wisdom is divisive. Discernment coupled with wisdom where I can go, I can see the right and wrong of that. But I also see how it fits in this situation, in the body of Christ, and in the, in the dynamics of all these relationships. And when you can see that too, now you can have wisdom to know what to do with your discernment. So uh, don't stop with discernment, guys. Make sure you couple it with wisdom. Number 11, Arrive uh, Dersey 5, I don't know, it says, hi, Pastor Mike. How do I repent unto salvation, repent and be saved, when I do not want to? I'm asking from the current place of being unsaved. Thank you. Um, I want you to think about this. Um, um, how do you... Let's say that you're you're married um, and you ask yourself, how do I love my spouse when I don't want to? Like I don't... And I, by that, I think you mean don't feel like it. Because if you didn't want to, if you really didn't want to, like, <laughs> like truly... I, my will says, I don't, I don't want to be saved. I believe it's true. I don't care. I don't want it. Well, then then why are you saying, how do I do it? Even though I don't want, I don't, that's confusing to me because if you want to do it, you're not asking the question, but let's say that you're just conflicted. Your emotions are not there, but you, your will is there. Your will says, I want to love, say, love my spouse, but I don't feel like it. Well, this is marriage all the time. Right? You're I'm, I'm a little, I'm irritated. I'm frustrated. How do I love my spouse? Well, then I put on actions and attitudes of love, regardless of how I feel. So what do you do if you're like, Lord, I want to be saved. Part of me doesn't want it. Maybe I still want my sin. Maybe I, maybe I, I have baggage and issues that I've, you know, I, I've become angry at, at you, at the church, at things like that. What do I do? I think you simply say, Lord, forgive my stubborn heart. I choose to trust in Christ. I choose to follow Christ. Here's, here's me. What I want is conflicted, but my will is going to cut through that and choose to trust in you and to follow you. And then you walk that out. And your heart will come around the bend eventually. But we, uh, we often don't want to be guided by our hearts. We want to guide our hearts. And when your want is confused, your will can cut through and make the choice that makes all the difference. That's what I'd recommend. Number 12, Tara Carlson says, A student reci- recently shared a fear of hers, the idea of eternity, even if in heaven. I have to admit, I struggle with this as well. Any advice for me to comfort, I could give her. uh, Any advice for me for comfort, I could give her from the Bible. All right. um, I'm going to show you guys my cat because I'm going to drink some coffee here. Just a second. That's Maxie. She's happy she has her chair. All right. So your question, Tara Carlson, <laughs> a little coffee break there. Um, <clears throat> so the fear is I understand it, Tara, and I hope I'm understanding it rightly. Um, sometimes it's hard to cram all your data into these little little question spots on on a, on a live chat. As I understand it, your, your question is like, hey, hey, Tara, I thought about living forever in heaven and that freaks me out. Like, I don't know that I want to live forever in heaven. What if I'm actually, what if I get bored? What if it just gets tedious? What if it's too repetitive? What if I'm like, ah... Um, so this is a fear that I think a lot of people have had, but I don't think it's it's a, a fear that we need to have. I think it's a wrong fear, and like a lot of fears are just wrong fears. We we we're afraid of things that don't make any sense. I used to be afraid of monsters under my bed when I was a kid. And the truth is those monsters were never gonna hurt me. They were very nice. Um, so <laughs> so uh well, how do you respond? Well, part of it I think is a misconception about heaven, and part of it might also be a misconception about living forever. Um We can we can be intimidated by living forever, but I think what we can do to talk about that misconception is talk about dying. See, because I've I've talked to people who go, I don't want to live forever. That sounds boring. But notice how they just keep on living every day. Like they don't they don't they don't just like go and off themselves the next day. People don't want to die. Even people who commit suicide do not want to die. They just don't want their lives to be the way they are. You see, to them, the fear is not length of life. It's ultimately quality of life. What is life? Is life really worth living another day if it's like this? And the idea of heaven to touch that misconception is, is not harps and clouds like what you see in Warner Brothers cartoons from 30 years ago. Heaven is the presence of God so tangibly present, so there, that, the, that you don't even need sunlight to light the place because his presence is there. God, who is joy and love and peace and righteousness and holiness and completion and satisfaction, that's all in him. He is so present with you that he lights the place. Revelation talks about this. We don't just sing songs all day long, as some people have, have that misconception that like heaven is just singing constantly. Actually, it seems as though heaven is more of a perfected place heaven and earth connected experience. So at the end of Revelation, we have a description of heaven um, coming down, the new Jerusalem, the city coming down out of heaven onto earth. So heaven and earth touch, they meet. So there's a tangible physical aspect in eternity where like we have a new earth we're living on and heaven is here on earth. So there's no separation between man and God, but there seem to be hills and rivers and trees and clouds and probably things like doing art and enjoying games with friends, and going on trips and stuff like that. Like, what I'm suggesting here is heaven is not a one-dimensional, boring experience, unending, day after day. Rather, it's the blessings of earth, compared with the blessings of heaven, with all of the curses and pains and sufferings removed, and the relationships are better and tighter than ever before. This is one reason why I think heaven doesn't include marriage. Because marriage also, while it's beautiful, me and my wife have a wonderful marriage. It also implies a separation between us and everyone else. I have it with her; nobody else does. You know, that's the not just the physical things, right? But the, the the connection, the emotional connection of marriage. But I think in heaven we're going to have such tight connections re- relationally with people that it will it'll be better than that, and so that there doesn't need to be something like marriage, um, and we're not going to procreate so <laughs> that too. Um, I hope that that helps, Tara. We devalue heaven, and then we get paranoid about a one-dimensional imagination of heaven. Um, heaven is, is going to be good. Uh, number 13, Woolpack says, Hey, Mike, is it okay to listen to old music from former Christians like Kevin Max or Ray Bolts? Is their music prior to them leaving Christ okay to listen to? Thanks and Pet Moxie for me, please. Um, all right, you know what? You asked. You asked. You asked. I have to pet her. Yes. So, and she's a, she's a licker. She likes to, she likes to show her affection by cleaning my fingers all the time. Um, so the idea of, um, listening to music from someone who's a former Christian, let me start by saying this. I don't know why that would be a problem. So in the case of say, like, uh, say like Robbie Zacharias's content, um, the man was not; it, it wasn't a question of apostasy. Um, he was victimizing people, and his victims are still around. And so, by promoting his content, we're throwing that in the face of the people he hurt. It's very different if it's a person who um, was, say, they did music, they 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 at least named the name of Christ, and now they're now they've fallen away, or they've rejected Christ, or they or they were never saved. I don't even care how you parse that. My point is, you look at their prior content. And you go, that was honoring Christ. That was wonderful. I think it's okay to enjoy that. And to just, when you think of them, you mourn from where they came from and where they landed, where they ended. David kind of does this, right? King David does it with Saul. Saul was like good for five minutes as king of Israel. And then he turned ugly. And remember, we try to think biblically about things. So I'm thinking, is there a biblical example I can use? Well, Saul failed, right? But David still rejoiced at the memory of Saul. When, when, when Saul dies and Jonathan with him, he's grieved and he's heartbroken over it because he doesn't feel like he has to discount everything Saul did just because Saul had such a bad ending. And we, we can get this from um, some other places too in scripture. Um, Gideon. Gideon is a guy and we read his story in, in, and he, he starts well. Right? He starts as this lowly guy. God uses in a mighty way. He the whole fleece thing, and they blow the trumpets and they break the they break the clay vessels and all this awesome stuff happens. But his the end of his story is really lousy. You can still rejoice over the good of what Gideon did and grieve over the bad. So I in that sense, yes, I, I don't have a problem with it. Unless my one caveat by by listening to their music and enjoying them, am I in some way. Uh, contributing to a negative effect they're having now, and if and I don't think that's happening, but if that was happening, that would be where I would I would personally draw a line. Those are my thoughts on it, with a few scriptures that I think give us some examples that might might parallel your question. Number fourteen, my four arrows says: Were Adam and Eve created with a sin nature at their creation? If not, why then did they choose to sin in the first place? All the while, God having called His creation good. Um. Okay, so... The, uh, the, the, the question is like this in my head, as I hear you ask it. Um, if Adam and Eve chose sin, does that mean that they had a sin nature upon their normal creation? And the question is, wouldn't that conflict with God calling creation good? And I guess I'd have two answers. One of them would be, um, I don't think they had a sin nature. I think they had free will. And free will... Even though they used it for evil, free will is a good thing. I don't think they had a proclivity to sin. I don't think it was anything driving them to sin the way it is in my heart. I don't think it was that. But there was an ability to sin in this particular area and a and, and a free will. Um, but free will is, is not inherently bad. When they use it for wicked things, and then when it becomes free will that's like bent towards evil, that's when it's like a sin nature. Um, so I think what they have is good. When God called it good, free will is good because free will can also be a choice to not sin. It can be a choice to love God. It can be a choice to honor honor Him. So in that sense, it's it's good. My other question would be just by just to say, um, when God says creation is good, um, I don't want to overread that word good. And and I just want to be a little careful that I don't go well. He said it was good, so there couldn't be anything. Uh, that I don't think of as good as a part of creation. Uh, it could be good as a whole while not having every element good. I say that, however, only as a theory, okay? <laughs> Forgive me for doing this to you guys. Um, I don't, I'm not teaching that there's some elements of creation that were not good. I'm not teaching that at all. I'm only saying I don't want to force on scripture over reading of, of, a, of, a, of a phrase. That's it. I hope that helps. It's just learning to not... Push the passage too far. Number 15. Anonymous question here. It says, I've been a believer for a very long time, but still struggle with the concept of God as a loving father, mainly due to my upbringing. How do I overcome this? The doubt is overwhelming. Um, so, uh, okay. I am not without personal life experience <laughs> to understand your situation. But I have to admit... That as much as I've had, you know, father issues growing up, I never saw it as like reflecting upon God and his, and his goodness, because in my head, and I, although I've known people who have, I, and so I'm not trying to like discount that, but in my head, God presented the contrast of the earthly father and stepfather that I experienced. It was the contrast. God was not them. God was what they were not and also i also recognize that while i call god my father he's not the replacement for my earthly father he's my heavenly father and this is a different category you know so the the problem you're having is it seems to me as you you look at the the wounds and the harm and the hurt and the reputation of your father and you're projecting this onto your heavenly father and to me i would just say you've got to learn to correct yourself on that and to say I mean, even repent when you do it. Not not like a guilt trip thing, but just just stop and repent and be like, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm treating you like you did what someone else did. And that's wrong. I mean, he's not you. You're not him. I don't want to do that to you, God. This is something that happens with, with people who've suffered trauma and it's natural. Um, a woman who's experienced sexual abuse might have a hard time being intimate with her husband. But when she's doing that, it hurts that relationship. And part of it is that she's, projecting a part of it's just memory and trauma, but part of it is perhaps projecting the motives and the ungodliness of one person onto someone who's innocent of those things. And so th- that's an element that's going on there that I would, I would encourage you to consider is that it's actually kind of wrong to uh, doubt God, the father, because Bob, your father <laughs> and what he did, you know, it's actually wrong. Um, Isaiah tells us that if, if my father and and mother forsake me, the Lord will uphold me. Where's is that Psalms? Um, it's actually a, a verse that is close to my own heart. Um, um, Psalm 27, 10. I want to share it with you guys. For my father and mother have forsaking me, but the Lord will take me in. You see, this is the contrast perspective. God's not like them. They may have forsaken me, but God will take me in. They may have let me down, but the Lord will uphold me. He will strengthen me. And he will do it in his own time, in his own ways. But he's different. He's different. You just got to separate the identities of your earthly father and your heavenly father. Um, And God give you wisdom. God give you wisdom. I think it'll help, though. Philigape says, Clashing translations in 1 Corinthians 7. Whom do verses 36 through 38 address? Some versions add daughters implying fathers but esv using in uh, using his betrothed and his passion seem to indicate a groom so one thing we can learn I'll, I'll tell you guys about this passage briefly but one thing we can learn about translations when they disagree not just one translation disagrees but when you see a variety of translations way, ways a verse is being handled it's because in the original language usually it's just hard to tell um so Peter even said, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. (laughs) This is one of those passages. So let me read it to you guys and you'll see. Um, This 1 Corinthians 7 is instructions towards single people and married people. And in this case, it's the question is, is this part of the instruction? A father who has a daughter he's responsible for, right? And he's helping her work through whether she'll stay single or get married. Or is it, a man who's engaged to a girl and they're thinking about maybe staying single, right? That they had an arranged marriage and maybe they're going to stay single. So let's read the passage. Here's how the ESV has it. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, so it's a fiance, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. let, Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever's firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So he who marries his betrothed does not does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Either you get married and you honor God in marriage, or you stay single and you're more free to do kingdom work in the name of Christ. Okay, but here's um, another translation. And um, I don't think you mentioned the other translation you were looking at, but I think the yeah. Um, the new King James memory serves me here. So new King James has it as if it was her father, right? Um, so it says, but if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, unless I've misremembered, let's read it. Um, if so, it's not betrothed here, it's a virgin. So she's an unmarried woman. is what it means. If she's past the flower of youth, um, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Okay. It's a little vague now. This translation keeps it slightly vague. It could be her fiancé, or it could be the, the father who's letting them marry. It's, it's, a, it's a bit vague, probably on purpose, because it's difficult to translate. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Now, that sounds like it's talking about a father, not a fiancé. Now, here's, here's where it gets really hard and really simple. The interpretation changes a lot, whether it's the father or the fiance, because you just go, oh, he's talking about a different situation. But the application stays the same. This is the simple part. The application is the same. Guys, girls, if you have the self-control and will to stay single and serve the Lord in your singleness, go for it. But if you just really want to get married, you're burning in your heart with a desire to be with somebody, to be physically together, to be pre- you know, just around each other and married and all that, you don't sin. That's also allowed too. What's interesting about this these this verse is that whichever interpretation you grab, the application remains the same. The only question is who is who was the um in their culture, who was the one making the decisions about getting married? And that is more of a cultural reality and not something we need to. stress about all right number 17 colby hill says my friend has left christianity his family's a bit extreme and aggressive with their faith and he says they're what pushed him away from his faith if i try to talk with him he gets angry what can i do um there's not a lot you can do anger is a great self-defense mechanism to keep people from talking to you about god right because you just get mad um you can be an example to him um i'm a little skeptical uh, and I don't mean totally, I'm not entirely skeptical, but I'm slightly skeptical, and I think properly so, of someone who says their family drove them away from Jesus. Because your family's not Jesus, right? Like, if Jesus drives you away from Jesus, there's something about Jesus you're like, I disagree, but I understand. <laughs> but if someone other than Jesus drives you away from Jesus, that's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. I have met Christians who would drive me away from their version of Christianity, their understanding of following Christ, their character, the way they behave, but never away from Jesus. Because I, re- I look at Jesus and I'm like, he's not them, right? God is so gracious and loving that he involves in his wonderful body of Christ a bunch of wackadoos, okay? There's, there are people that are Christians of all stripes. And I look at that and I see God's grace and kindness, but I don't act like they're the authoritative, authoritative representation of Christ, every one of them. Right? Maybe you have someone who's full of pride and they're rude and they're kind of ignorant and they presume things and then they speak without knowing. I just think that's them. I don't reflect that on Christ. So I would want your friend to know that, to just differentiate between his family and Jesus. But this is complicated because what if what if he says they drove him away, but really what they were doing was just telling him he had to repent of his open rebellion against Christ? Okay, well in that case, truth drove him away. Um, in which case, it was because he was harboring something. He, he ran from the light because he was he wanted the darkness. I don't know. I wasn't in this situation. I'm open to who knows. I would just want to dig for info. But um, but if you try to talk to him, he gets angry. So what can you do? Um, you can try to preserve the relationship. Sometimes what helps with friends is telling them the thing that you're thinking that you're not saying. Like where you actually just tell your friend, like, hey man, when I try to talk to you about this stuff, um, it seems like it makes you angry. I, I I'm bummed by that. I don't want you to get angry. I just care about your soul. I know your family's got issues. I've seen them. They're they're extreme and aggressive, but I'm talking about you and Jesus and I just wish we could talk about it. Like sometimes you just got to tell them what you really think and not find ways around that. Um, I don't know what you should do there, Colby. <laughs> Consider these things and may you have the wisdom to know what might apply to your situation. Cherry Rowe has a question. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hi, Cherry. Um, how does one recognize if a message is biblically accurate? Oftentimes a message is given with scripture to back it up. How do you gauge the truthfulness of the message? Oh, well, you have very good timing, Cherry, because this Monday I'm doing this. So I thought a long time ago, and for a while I've been thinking, I'd like to take like a, a whole sermon of, say, Joel Osteen and actually walk through it and do this with it. How do you recognize if it's biblical, if it's accurate? And so I'm going to do it this Monday, this Monday at 1 p.m., which is when I normally do streams So Monday at one um, Pacific time, that's in California, I'll take a whole Joel Osteen sermon and methodically break it down point by point. But let me give you a couple tips that you'll see me doing that same video. And this is this is what I'll do: you take the message they're giving and you make sure you understand their points. Maybe write them down. They say you have to give if you were to get, (laughs) right? And then you take the verse. That they use to support it. Oh, Malachi, where it says, you know, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and then your vats will be overflowing. Okay. Okay. So I I, I take the verse and then, then you stop. You've just begun. All you've done is identified the teaching and the verse they're using to support it. Then you open Malachi and you read it in context and you start asking questions like, who is it written to? Oh, Malachi was written to the Jews, but wait, the Jews were under the law. And in the law, there was a requirement to tithe and blessings and curses depending was dependent upon obedience. So it makes sense that Malachi says this to them. But in the New Testament, we're not under the law. So how do I apply this to Christians? In fact, if I was to tithe under the law, as you read the whole law in context, I'd be giving to the Levites, not to my pastor. He's obviously not interested in obeying it really. <laughs> so it's it starts to unravel and you start to realize that the interpretation isn't supported in the context. So that's what you do. You, you make sure you identify the point they made, the scripture they used to support it. And then you go look up that scripture in context and hope for clarity to see if it actually supports the thing that they were teaching. All right. Number 19, um, anonymous question it says, I'm a family photographer being asked to do sessions involving a same sex couple with kids. I've done sessions for cohabitating pregnant couples before. How can I handle this as a Christian? Um, I, I, Um, Okay. So th- this is a challenging issue for anybody and I'm going to I'm going to say something I said earlier on, which is I don't think you need, you need to not violate your conscience here. So whatever your conscience is between you and the Lord, if you can't feel clear and pure and righteous doing it, do not do that thing. Now, let me, let me answer this from my own perspective. Um, I, I think that Christians should offer services to everybody. When you have a business, you should offer services to everybody unless those services are being used to proclaim some lie that you can't get behind. So this is why, like, say with doing a a birthday, a birthday cake, I could say, let's say it's a LGBT couple. And one's like, I need a birthday cake for my, for my, my, uh, my spouse. And it's like, happy birthday, Joe. And so you write happy birthday, Joe. You're not in, you're not saying like, you're serving a, a couple that's LGBT, but you're not like Serving them in a way that proclaims a falsehood about reality or endorses or encourages sin I don't have a problem with that But what if it was the wedding cake and the wedding cake says like congratulations? And it's and it endorses you you're helping endorse something that is not actually a real wedding it, And this is again the, the 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 tomatoes the rotten tomatoes are flying my way now as I say this um the objection that christians have to say same-sex marriage is that marriage by nature is two opposite-sex people. And let me say it in a, less, in, a, in a less offensive parallel. When two people have a baby, it's two opposite-sex people. Their parents because they parented this child. And so parents should be male-female to parent the child that they produce from their own DNA. I think this is natural and right. I think marriage is only a reflection of that reality. So when you say same-sex marriage, you're just—it's that's not a marriage. This isn't what marriage is. Marriage is man and woman. So that's just definitional. What it, so now you're proclaiming it on a cake that's different. You as a photographer, um, I would I would want to ask the question of: Am I merely providing a service for an LGBT couple with kids or same-sex couple with kids, or am I endorsing or or propo- you know promoting a lie? in the act of performing that service. And I think that depends on the, the nature of the photography and the kind of work you do. And um, God help you because a lawsuit's coming your way. <laughs> and um, and this is, to be honest, like, okay, just as a human, the idea that you would sue somebody because they won't put like your your the thing you want on a cake, it just seems like petty. And like, I don't, it just seems crazy. The overreaction, the vitriol that people have on these issues. Um, But, uh, but yeah, it, it does happen. So uh, God bless you and give you wisdom in it. Number 20, my job has been taking away too much family time, extreme employee shortage. Um, I know about that. Um, that's happening in a lot of businesses, but I've been there many years and feel the relationships are still a mission field. How can I balance this? Um, I, I don't know what to tell you except to remind you of priorities, um, if your job takes away from takes away from you away from your family for a season, i think that there's an understandable thing going on there. but if it's taking you away is hurting your family, let me just remind you that your family is more important than your job or your career. like as a christian, your family and you you providing for them in, in the ways you're supposed to, that's more important than your ministry activities. so family needs to come first here. and that seems to be Like saying it's a mission field doesn't take away the fact that you have a responsibility as a a husband, as a wife, as a parent to take care of of this family. So if you feel that your job is hurting your family, like something's got to give, something's got to give. And whether that means you go to the job and you say, I simply am not going to be available for this many hours. I love you guys. I don't want to lose this job, but you're going to make me lose my family. That's just how it is. That's the reality of it. Um, yeah, I think, I think family comes first. So there's a season. There's a sense in which a season comes and you're like, oh, it's, I'm working a lot this season. I've been in those seasons. I've been in a lot of those seasons recently. But that can't just go on forever. Um, yeah. If a man does not provide for his family, he's wor- he's worse than an infidel, scripture says. But providing for your family can be seen as not just financially providing, but making sure to take care of your home and your, your kids and your spouse. Um, so I think those things are really important. God give you wisdom there. I realize that I'm... When I say wisdom, when I say God give you wisdom, what I mean is I know I'm answering your question with only this much data. You may, as I answer you might be thinking, oh, but Mike doesn't know about this or that. And you're right. So maybe you should change the answer based on the knowledge you have of the other things in your life. Just consider it something to think about and God give you genuine wisdom on this. Um, thank you, guys. I will see you Monday. I've put a link in the video description down below to the video I'll be doing on Joel Osteen. It's going to be methodical. This is not a hit piece. This isn't for entertainment purposes, but it's going to be methodically working through, moment by moment, everything Joel Osteen says in a typical sermon. I just took his most recent sermon he gave last Sunday, and I'm working through it now, preparing notes. And um, and I'll say this. I've never done this with Joel Osteen, because I don't listen to Joel Osteen. Um, but... It was worse than I thought going in. I had a, I had an image of Joel Osteen, what I thought he did. And I had, higher, I had a higher estimation of him than I ended up with after actually analyzing and evaluating his message. Um, that doesn't mean uh, that I have the worst possible evaluation, but I'm saying it, it's revealing. It's revealing. So thank you guys. Appreciate you being here. Lord bless you. Keep your eyes upon the Lord. Remember, um, even as we do things like discernment, looking at Joel Osteen, we got to always get the plank out of our own eye first. Look at your own holiness, your own godliness, pay attention to your own situation, deal with your own cat. Yeah. And, uh, that's it. That's all I have to say.